Scripture passage today is from Matthew, the fifth chapter. I'll be reading verses 3 through 9. I'm reading from the International Version. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. This is God's word. He'll bless us as we read and obey it. Amen. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We are in the midst of a great national debate over whether a military strike against Bashar al-Assad's Syrian government is either warranted or wise on the one hand or morally mandated on the other. Critical facts are in dispute. Did Assad's government actually use chemical weapons against its citizens or was it rebel forces, our government says the former Putin's Russian maintains the latter. Are United States national security interests at stake, or even if they aren't? Should America enforce a humanitarian line in the sand against the use of chemical weapons by punishing those who use them? And even if we should, can any meaningful punishment actually be administered short of all-out war? Do elements in the rebel forces that might be aided by such a strike represent an even greater global evil than the Assad government? Is there a need to, in the interests of broader global peace, to maintain respect for the voice of an American president when he speaks? These are not simple issues. I admired Pope Francis's call for a global day of prayer and fasting for peace in Syria and the Middle East this week. At the same time, I believe the Bible does teach that there is a time in which force can be used to preserve and liberate life. Force can be used by the state judiciously and with moral purpose, even if often it is not. So force can be one tool for peace. These are some of the concerns that swirl about our hearing of the text this morning. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. And much as I brought those questions, and much as I wanted to listen to an answer to those questions as I came to the text, and much as I believe that the text does inform that and other texts and guide how we answer those issues, I believe the text takes us first, insistently, to another place, a place closer to home, a more personal place. The fact is that Jesus, when confronted with public issues of the day, almost without exception, turned them to personal and individual choice. When he was questioned about the slaughter by Pilate of Galileans in the temple, 
He said, unless you repent, you all will perish. When he was asked about Caesar's task, tax, he said, uh, render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. When someone comes to him with a problem about a brother who with injustice and unrighteousness won't properly divide the inheritance, Jesus says to him, take heed and beware of all covetousness. For man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I don't think Jesus was out of touch with his time. I think he knew about the slaughter of the innocents by Herod and the earlier slaughter of 3,000 in 4 AD at the temple. I believe he knew about the Galilee. We know he knew about the Galilean uh, slaughter at the temple in his own day. I don't think Jesus was out of touch. I think Jesus insistently and inexorably believed that the weightiest and greatest problem of his day or any day was the way in which the eternal destiny of individual souls before him rested. The point of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes with them is unmistakably unmistakably to declare to every individual that will hear them that to have eternal life, you must be a new creature. You must have changed hearts without being merciful, without being poor in spirit, without being pure. You will never see God. You will never enter the kingdom. You will never be his son or daughter. As important as matters of public policy are, as war and peace are, Jesus is telling us that the weightiest problem of human life is the disposition of every individual human heart. We've been looking at the Beatitudes as the marks of a citizen of the kingdom of God. From the beginning to the end, the sermon is a shot across the bow, saying you need new hearts, you need changed lives, you need a wake-up call, you need nothing less than to be born again. Listen to the words of verse 20 that come a little bit later in the chapter. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me invite you to thought exercise for a a moment this morning. I found this uh, helpful myself, and that is to flip the Beatitudes, to look at them in reverse, to read them backwards. If you did, they would go something like this. If we are content and not poor in spirit, we will not be in the kingdom. If we are satisfied with ourselves just the way we are, we will not be comforted. If we are proud, we will not inherit the earth. If we don't hunger and thirst after righteousness, we will remain empty. If we don't obtain mercy, we will receive judgment. If we are impure, we will not see God. And if we provoke being bitter and hostile, we are not sons and daughters of God. And while salvation is entirely the free, unmerited, unearned, gracious gift of God, 
This text is a shot across the bow, as all the Beatitudes, as the Sermon on the Mount itself is. That believing in Jesus, by receiving him, by giving our lives to him, is inseparably connected with deep change. To actually become merciful and pure and repentant and forgiving is a necessary consequence of receiving the grace of Jesus Christ. I believe from the bottom of my heart that the center and foundation of the gospel is the forgiving, loving, gracious gift of God in Jesus Christ, but it is simply false ever to think that that can be received without deep change. The Beatitudes simply tell us that the blessings of eternity will be given and only given to those who have become new creatures. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What is this peace that we are called to make? Let me say at the outset, this in this context is not psychological freedom from anxiety. This is separation from hostility. Those who are enemies, those who are at war have been made friends, have been brought to peace. The war is over. The warfare is gone. The hostility has been vanquished. Romans 8, 7 says the natural mind is enmity against God. That's a strong word. And uh, we're not going to take time to argue for the fact that we are naturally at enmity with God. Some of you might want to say, well, no, I might be ignoring him, but I'm really not hostile to him. Let me direct you to a wonderful essay by Jonathan Edwards on men's, men naturally are God's enemy. And he goes through how intellectually and emotionally and volitionally we are as enmity, but right at the heart of everything, he says, here's the crux of his argument, that we are enemies with God because we are inveterate in the bottom of our souls, idolaters. That's what we are experienced at. That's what we are good at. And here's the gist of his argument in that essay. All the sin that people commit is what they do in the service of their idols. There is no one act of sin but what is an act of service to some false god, and therefore... Whereinsoever, that's his writing, whereinsoever God opposes sin in them, he is opposite to their worship of their idols, on which account they are his enemies. Peace is the end of hostility with God. It is peace with God. I like the way Frederick Buechner, one of my heroes in the faith, puts it in his book, Wishful Thinking. Peace has come to mean for many of us the time when there aren't any wars or even when there aren't any major wars. Beggars can't be choosers, and we most of us settle for that. But in Hebrew, peace, shalom, means fullness. means having everything you need to be holy and happily yourself. For Jesus, peace seems to have meant not the absence of struggle, but the presence of love. The text promises that we are to be sons and, by extension, daughters of God. Peacemakers are sons and daughters of God. That means we share his face. We are invited into a deep, intimate life relationship with him. We look like him. 
and we act like him. If we are sons and daughters of the living God, who himself has made peace while we were yet enemies, it means, and the text explicitly says we are to be peacemakers. Peace is something like war, which is to be waged, which is to be fought for, which is to be made. It is difficult, it is uncomfortable, it means to be at full stretch. There is the uncomfortableness of forgiving someone else that we don't want to forgive. It is the uncomfortableness of apologizing to someone that we don't naturally want to apologize to. It is the uncomfortableness of reaching out and speaking the truth in love, of rebuking someone in love that needs to be corrected. It is the uncomfortableness of reserving forgiveness until there is active repentance and calling a brother or sister or friend to that. But most of all, peacemaking is evangelism. Peacemaking is sharing the good news. Peacemaking is putting forward the good news that the entire story of the gospel is the story of reconciliation, that while we were yet enemies, Christ died, God died for us, that we who were at war, we who were at enmity, we who were captured by our false gods might be at peace and reunion and restoration with the living God. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? What does it mean to wage peace? Here's one of the books that's being required at Golden Gate Seminary this fall. I thought I'd glean a lot of my message from this. I didn't have time to, although I read two-thirds of it, skimmed two-thirds of it. But let let me direct you to this fabulous book on peacemaking in which it says, here's what you need to do to wage peace. You need to glorify God. You need to reorder your priorities so that your thought form is how in this instance, in this historical setting, can God be given glory through my life and through another to whom I need to be a reconciler or reconciled with? Get the log out of your own eye. That's number two. Recognize your own. Uh, Act with restoration. That's number three. Act with reconciliation. Wonderful book. But just in in brief, I want to look at the two specific, somewhat surprising resources the text gives us in this own chapter. It says, here are resources that are necessary deeply and truly to wage peace. Down later in the chapter, verses 45 to 47, um, Jesus says to pray. If it is possible, live at peace with all people, and the strategy for them is to pray for them. Matthew 6, 9-10, Jesus says, pray like this. Pray that God's name would be hallowed. Pray that God's kingdom would come. Pray that uh, his will might be done in your life. Pray for that for yourself and for others. In other words, pray for purity. Sometimes the gospel divides. 
Jesus, in another context, says that I did not come to bring peace, but division. And I think it's significant that in the listing of the Beatitudes, it is the pure that see God. And then the sons and daughters of God are to peace, be peacemakers. Purity precedes peace. James uh, puts the same order together in James 3.17 in his own book. Purity precedes peace. There is no peacefulness. There is no evangel or good news which finally can be forged and found any place other than the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has established there. Purity precedes peace. The second uh, suggestion that is given, not strategy, in this chapter, verses 45 to 47, is when you see an enemy, greet them. Don't simply uh, greet those that you are familiar with, those who you are friendly with, but in other words, insofar as it depends on you, never say to another person, you have no future with me. I will not allow there to be a future with me. By greeting another, it says, I am open, I'm reaching out, I'm not going to harbor hostility. I'm not going to nurse a grudge that the pathway to conversation is always open. We're to pray, we're to greet, we are to be peacemakers because we receive peace. We will never receive mercy, the text says, unless we have obtained mercy. We will never be sons and daughters of God unless we obtain peace. We cannot make and wage and forge peace unless it has been received. The text is clear as to how that is done. John 1.12 says, To all who have received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. And Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ, in Christ, we are all sons of God through faith. To be peacemakers is to receive the peace of God that has been won and forged by Christ on the cross. That's the table that we gather around this morning, that we might never ever forget that it is by the blood and love of Christ that we are invited into a deep, lifelong, life-changing relationship that we can be made new, that we can be given new hearts. So gather around the table this morning as I invite the deacons to come and wait upon us as we observe this picture of his good news and of his love.